You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Morning, church. Today we will continue in our Joel series, and I'll be covering chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me there, or you can follow on the screen. Now, before I get into chapter 2, let me give you an overview of chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 1, Joel talks about things that has already come to pass, and it's horrible. But in chapter 2, it's talking about a vision of what is coming. And what is coming is way worse than chapter 1. Way worse. Now, think of it like this. Charmander evolves into Charmeleon, and Agumon digivolves into Greymon. So what I'm saying is that chapter 2 make chapter 1 looks cute because what is coming is way worse. Now the overview of this is you'll see chapter 1 and chapter 2, they're very similar because they are parallel in nature because there's two parts to the chapters. So in chapter 1, it talks about how God is against His people and, in, and then the second part of that is how they need to repent. And the same with chapter 2. God is against these people. And the second part is, you need to repent. So if this was a movie, if Joel was made into a movie, the original and the sequel is pretty much the same thing. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 have the same plot, just different circumstances. Just like the movie John Wick. In John Wick 1, what happens is someone takes John's dog away from him and then John goes on a killing spree, killing 77 people. Yes, I counted. Now, you not may advocate this. You may not say this out loud, but the puppy dog lovers in the room will be, yes, you do that, John, Mr. John. I'm on your side. Justice was served. No one should do that to a puppy. And then in John Wick 2, the exact same thing plays out. But this time, someone takes his car. And then he adds on to his kill count 128 people. Again, you may not voice this out, but the car enthusiast in the room will say, yeah, yeah, I'm with John on this one. No one touch a man's car like that. You go, Mr. John Wick. Justice was served. Now, John Wick 1 and John Wick 2 are pretty much the same thing. Just like Joel, chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's the same plot. So don't be surprised if there are the same similar themes and same similar emphasis. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because in the same way, what if I told you that when you thought you were on John Wick's side, but what if you weren't? What if he was actually after you? What if the Baba Yaga, the boogeyman, was after you? The same way the people of God thought that God was for them against his enemies, but no, no, Joel here says, no, 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 don't be smiling. Take off that smirk. You should be mourning. You shouldn't be celebrating because justice is coming and it's coming against you. 
So John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. We'll be going through 11 verses where it talks about how God is going against these people. And I see three parts in these 11 verses. So the first is a warning that an army is coming. Second is that the description of that army. And lastly, I'll be talking about the army's commander. Now, before we dig further into the passage, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that your spirit will be here. Illuminate this passage for us. Be with me. May I be helpful to those who, who listens, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first part, a warning against an army, a warning of an army coming. Verse 1, blow the trumpets, which is a so far, which is like a giant ram's horn. Blow it in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Now, when it talks about holy hill and Zion, that's just another poetic way to say the capital city of Israel, which is Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem here. Sound the alarm. Why? So that the people who live in the land may tremble before the day of the Lord because it is near. It is at hand. Now to the Israelites, what they use the trumpet for is sometimes in a military attack, it's to when to know when to charge. There's a sound for when the troops should retreat. The trumpet is also sound for when the people should go and gather and worship. Now if they're in a city and an army is coming and advancing on them, the trumpet would be blown and there's an alarm where the people can know and go take shelter. There's different sounds to this trumpet. Just like the school bells, you know what I'm talking about, youth? You know, when you're waiting for, the, you know, there's three bells that you wait for in the day. The, the morning tea bell, the lunch bell, and the end of school bell. You know what I mean? But what if that bell continues to ring, not just once, but continues to ring? You know that it might be a fire bell and you get to run on the oval. It doesn't matter if you're in exams. It's, it's called Saved by the Bell for a reason. Joel says to the people, sound the alarm. Sound the alarm in Jerusalem. Now, what does an alarm do for you? What do you use an alarm for? It's to wake you up, is it not? Now, I set my alarm, but it doesn't wake me up. It wakes up Demi so she can wake me up. That's what I do. Sometimes an alarm is to wake people up. And sometimes it's to warn people. It's to warn people of a coming, impending danger. Now, I remember 10 years ago as a youth pastor at a camp, while we were playing some board games, card games and something, there I heard an alarm that goes off in the vicinity. It, it's so loud in the whole campus. And the youth, they looked at me and I looked at the youth. And this is what I said. It's probably a false alarm, guys. Just keep playing. Johnny, it's your turn. Hurry up. Now, now my 21-year-old self, he's stupid. But, and I told them to keep playing. I'm like, cool, guys. And we kept playing. But then this alarm kept going on and on. And then I realized, okay, something must be wrong. And so I opened, and, and I opened the door to check what's happening. And I kid you not, Jesus be my witness. The moment I opened the door, the opposite door also opens. But what I saw was three elderly lady wobbling out, having in tow their luggage and black thick smoke is just puffing out their rooms. 
And I realized that fire is just right next door. And I looked to my flock, my youth group, and I said, guys, it's not a false alarm. The fire is next door. You need to run for your lives. Everyone panic. (laughs) Now, thank goodness no one was hurt that day, but it could have been way worse. So what happened was uh, one of the ladies put in a pork bun in the microwave instead of putting it for two minutes, she put two hours and went off to talk to her friend and the microwave blew up. And anyways, but that's what an alarm does. It warns us of a coming danger. Now, if you haven't signed up for church camp, you should, because that's where all the memories come from. And I promise you, I'm a way better pastor now than I was back then. So sign up for church camp. But you've got to ask, why did Joel command his people to sound the alarm? Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand. Now, the day of the Lord gets mentioned about five times in the book of Joel. This is the second time. And according to the understanding of the people back then, the day of the Lord is when God comes with power and authority to judge his enemies, to judge the wicked. But then Joel kind of throws a curveball at them and say, no, 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 no. He's not coming against his enemy. He's coming against you guys. You guys should be trembling and afraid. And then Joel goes on to describe the day of the Lord in verse 2 as a day of darkness, of gloom, day of cloud and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large, mighty army comes such as never was of old and never will be again. He's saying there is an army so numerous that you cannot count. There will not be an army like them in the past, in the future, and they are coming against you. And all my mind could think of is Lord of the Rings, an orc army coming to lay siege on the city of Gondor, or any epic Lord of the Rings battle scenes where the enemy is just too numerous, too overwhelming, too scary. And then the second part of the message is the description of that army. And it's verses 3 to 10. So bear with me. So this is a huge description that Joel describes. And he goes into so much detail. Why? Because he wants you to know how mighty and powerful that this army is. He says, before them, fire devours. Behind them, flame ablaze. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. And behind them, after they go through it, it's like a desert place. Nothing escapes. They have an appearance like horses. They gallop along like cavalry, which noise are like chariots. They leap over mountaintops. They leap over mountaintops. Usually, what stops cavalry and chariots are mountains. That's why in ancient culture, usually battles with cavalry and chariots happen on the plains, like on even ground, because of the terrain of the mountain. It's just it just stops, and it's not very good for horses and chariots. But here he's saying those natural obstacles and natural barriers cannot stop this army. Joel then continues, like the crackling fire, they consume stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. 
At the sight of them, the nation anguish, everyone faces turn pale. They charge like warriors, they scale the wars like soldiers, they mark in line, not swerving from their course. They do not get in each other's way, they march straight ahead and plunge through the defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city walls. Now back then, if you have a city war, it means you are safe. If you do not have a city war, you are very vulnerable to, from raid attacks. They can just come and steal your stuff. But if you have a city war, you're safe. It's like our insurance. It's like our driving in the car. It's like our airbags. <laughs> the city of Jerusalem, they felt safe because they have high walls. But Joel is saying, your defenses are futile. They climb into houses like thieves entering through windows meaning you got nowhere to hide. And you wouldn't even know what hits you. And before them, the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars shine no longer. Man, that's doom and gloom. It's not that night. That's a scary army. That seems like an army that's unstoppable. Mind you, the book of Joel is prophetic, but it's also poetry. He's using poetry at the moment. And so with poetry, uh, poets use a lot of similes and a lot of metaphors, so it doesn't help if you read it super literal. Um, Just like how the Holy Spirit gets described at the baptism of Jesus, like a dove ascending from the heavens, does not mean that the Holy Spirit is a bird, like flapping around. It's it's not that. The Holy Spirit is like, at that instance, a dove. But it does not stop me from having a mental pictures of soldiers walking up walls. Is this like an army of ninjas? But what was this army? And in my research, there are three main popular views. So the first view is that this army is describing another swarm of locusts, but just way worse than chapter 1. In many cultures, horses and locusts are the same. Many believe that they have the same sort of face, that they look the same. Now let's have a look. Let's have a closer look. Do they look the same? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. But the moment you put armor on a horse, now we're talking Now that looks pretty similar. What locusts are are described horses in armor, horses ready for battle. So could it be another locust army? Or the second view is that people view this as a literal human army, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And depending where you date the book of Joel, that makes sense. And this is an army that are really brutal and cruel, where they come into the land and they conquered Israel and they brought them out into exile and they broke down the city walls and they burnt the temple. Now these guys, they will skin people alive. They were the guys that invented the crucifixion. And so they would put people on poles, crucify them, and make just a road full of dead corpses just to display their brutality. And not only do they catch people and, and bring them and bring them to their land, like 
like slave trade and, and capture them. No, they just, even if the house is still good, they would just burn down the house. That, that was their mentality. They were just, they just pyromaniacs. They just like to burn things. So could it be the Assyrian Babylonian army? Could be. Or could it be a non-human cosmic army? That's the third view. And it's very similar. Joel chapter 2 is very similar to Revelations, the army that gets described in Revelations 9 verses 1 to 11. There's many similarities between these two different passages where trumpets are blown, there's smoke and there's fire, the sky are darkened. In both cases, the army gets described as looking at horses, like horses. But in Revelation, these these horse-like army gets an add-on, a scorpion tail. And so if you get stung by this tail, you go into pain for five months and you just wish you'd die. Now, that's some sort of scary stuff. And again, my mind's playing literal, trying to paint the picture. And I'm just thinking of the Zerg swarm, like if you ever played StarCraft too. Could it be an army of locusts? Could it be a literal human army or a cosmic army? We don't know. I don't know. But whichever view that you take on what this army is does not matter because at the end of the day, it is the Lord's army that he will use to punish his people, which leads me to the last section of the sermon. The army's commander. Who is it? Let's read verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. Not anyone else's, his army. He's leading the charge. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great and it's dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can stand it? And the answer is, no one. No one. This whole time, the Israelites thought that the day of the Lord was a good day for them because God was against his enemies. But no, again, that curveball, no, no. God is against you, Israel. And I wonder at this point if Israel made some noise and says, but, but, but aren't we God's people? Aren't we his chosen? Isn't the temple of the Lord here? Why are we being punished? Why are they being punished? I don't know. But I got some young adults to whip up some memes for me from time to time. And here's a photo. Now, what goes through your mind? A, Andrew is being romantic and just getting some flowers for his wife. Or B, you might be like me thinking, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? The thing with buying flowers for your wife, sometimes it's not, not everyone that buys flowers for their spouse is trying to be romantic. They're just trying to say sorry for something they've done. And, and you have to ask, what did the Israelites do for the army commander to lead such a mighty army against them? What did they do? Could it be that they put sugar in their coffee? Could it be that they put 
pineapple in their pizzas. Could it be that they walked out of the cinema before the end credit scene of a Marvel movie? Could it be that they were on the freeway on the right lane but driving slowly? Could it be that they took up two parking spots? Could it be that they left the seats? They didn't put the seat down after they're done. They didn't even flush the toilets or wash their hands. Or could it be that they went into an Asian household with their shoes on? Oh, man. Oh, oh. Yeah, you, you, you die at my household, but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, but here's the unique thing about the book of Joel. Compared to the other prophets, Joel never actually tells us the, the specific sin that Israel commits. He never really accused them of anything, like it gives us the detail of what they have done wrong. Unlike the prophet Amos, where he calls out and speaks out against the people because they felt so secure that they became spiritually smug. Or the prophet Isaiah speaks out against his people for their disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. So what could it be? Maybe for Joel, Joel is calling his people to return. For someone to return means maybe they have turned away from God. Maybe they have turned away to other idols. That's why Joel is calling them to return. But again, we are not too sure what sin that the people of God has committed. But here's what I know. There will be no sin that will go left unpunished. There is no sin that goes left unpunished. So what does that mean for us today? There's only one application for my message for you. Return to the Lord. Return to Him. Come back to Him. And laughs aside, maybe you are here and you are thinking, Dex, I can't return. You, you don't know much about me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know the, the, the sin that I have committed. I have to go out and fix myself first before I feel worthy and deserving to come back to the Lord. Dex, there are these sin in my life where I feel like I am so chained up. Yes, I want to come back to the Lord, but I feel that these sins and these devils, these demons, they are holding me back to get from the Lord. I can't come back to Him. I can't return back to Him. But I have good news for you today. Look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, even now return to me. Even now, no matter how far gone you think you are no matter how bad things get at this moment it's not too late to come back to me but 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 I'm changed I'll I'll come to you 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 just return to me 
And here's where some Christians fall into the trap of thinking. They think that the Old Testament God is the angry God, but the New Testament God is the kind, meek God. But let me tell you, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they are one and the same. The day of the Lord in the New Testament is still the day of the Lord, but the day, but who is that Lord? That Lord is none other than Jesus. Paul in Thessalonians 5 talks about the day of the Lord and he centers that day now on Jesus. He's saying, hey, the Lord, he's Jesus. He's the commander of that army. And, and that's good news to us. Even in the midst of when we know that the alarm has been rung the alarm has been sounded that a mighty army is coming against us with its commander. Why? Because yes, we know the Bible tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There will come a day where we'll be judged for all the sins that we have committed or the error in our wrongs. There will come a day of darkness, of destruction, of despair and devastation, a day of ruin and reckoning. And we may think, how can I face that humility? I am doomed. But this is where the gospel comes running to your rescue. 1 Corinthians 1, 8, Paul again says, He, being Jesus, will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless, that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be blameless. But How? How does Jesus keep us blameless to the end? How I tell you how, because there was once a king that so loved that when he came into the battlefield, he was not out for the blood of his enemies, but he was there to offer his blood to the enemy. The Bible says, for when we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. There was a price that he prayed on that cross as the nail sunk into his hands, his feet, the crown of thorns on his brow. In the midst of all the noise, the laughter, the mocking, the scorning, Christ yells out with all the strength and breath that he could muster. He yells out and he shouts out not to the crowd, but to his father. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And he cries out on our behalf. And it was on that cross, there was a great exchange. His life for ours. His righteousness for our sin. His death for our debt. So instead of ruin, we get reconciliation. Instead of judgment, we get justification. Instead of destruction, we get deliverance. Instead of guilt, the guilt that we always held, we get grace. Instead of punishment, we get peace. Instead of a mighty army that charges against us, we get the Almighty running towards us with His arms out wide. Eyes not, with, not full of anger, but of tenderness. We don't get wrath, but we get warmth. Because of Christ, instead of a fire that consumes us, we get forgiveness. Instead of hell, we get Him. 
because of Jesus, we get Him. Return to Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray for those who are here today. Lord, if they are far from you, if they feel so chained down, Lord, we know that you are the breaker of chains and that, Lord, you have made a way for us to come to you, God. You made a way for us through the death of your Son. Lord, as his body was broken and his blood was spilt, Lord, you have made us blameless. And Lord, you look at us and you are pleased because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Lord, I pray for your people. Those who think they're too far gone today, Lord, I pray that they can make that step of faith and come back. If you are here today and you feel that you do want to return, you do want to return to, to God, I'll, I want to see a show of hands and I, I want to pray for you. Is that you? Do you want to return to God today? Anyone? Dear Lord, we thank you that you're so good that you're so kind, that you have been so merciful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.